Hi friends, this is episode 63 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi friends, it's so great to be back with you. It's been so long, but we have been having some very real audio issues. I'm so thankful for the audio guys. They know so much more than I do about all that stuff, and they have worked so hard since we've come back from being away uh, from the amphitheater with all the COVID mess and everything. And this week, they had a very real audio issue, and you're about to hear it. I appreciate you guys so much for your patience. Um, I'm trying to pray for patience, too, because this was some really great stuff. But what you're about to hear is some audio that is distorting and uh, all over the place. We do have a backup every week of our audio. And, uh, of course, that audio, which was clean and beautiful sounding, stopped uh, right at the beginning. So it's my opinion is the devil really doesn't want you to hear this. So I just ask for your patience. If you turn the volume down a little bit, I've listened to the whole thing. And I don't know if it was just me, but there were parts of it that sounded like it was getting better. Maybe I was just going tone deaf while I was listening to it. But beyond that, beneath the bad audio, there is just some great conversations. Some people bring up just some of the most brilliant things about God's character and we learned so much about how God interacted during a time, during this chapter that's only about this king that was only mentioned in one chapter of the book of Daniel, where God came in before the knocking, and the knocking was the king's knees. And I can't wait for you to hear it. I apologize for the bad audio, but I promise the next episode will be much better. Thank you so much for your patience, and I'm so delighted to continue on this journey as we continue to research and develop this amazing, infinite character of God's love. Welcome to the Bible Lab. There is no such thing as a second-generation Christian. There's no such thing as a second-generation Christian. I know that sounds like a weird question, doesn't it? This is, uh, oh, this is today's groaner. Okay, but most of you say yes. It looks like about 75% of you are saying yes. About, uh, wow, and about 12.5% no, and 12.5% are saying maybe, because you absolutely have no idea what I'm talking about, which is good. <laughs> Get used to it. Um, so we're going to talk about this. Um, a, a lot of people say, well, I'm a second generation, third, fourth, fifth generation Christian, or whatever your denomination is, and you're generational into it. And we're gonna talk today about, is that even possible? Can you be born into your faith, or do you have to actually be born again yourself in order to have your faith? And so every person who has faith is a first generation because you cannot rely on what's happened in the past. We're going to see this going on because we've had some great stories so far of King, King Nebuchadnezzar who has experiences with a magical, mystical God who does unexplainable things. He rescues three men, in, young men, in a fiery furnace not a hair singed, they don't even smell of smoke. Uh, he's seen how a, a God can bring visions and, and how God can share the meaning of these visions to other people who didn't even have the, the dream. And he, he saw how God can even control his own animalistic nature. And we just finished in chapter four with Nebuchadnezzar just praising this God, this living God, the most high God. And so generationally, we've seen whoever comes after Nebuchadnezzar has these stories, these amazing stories of the Most High God. The problem is, as the generations are going on, you have to be a first-generation believer in order to be a believer. Second-hand information does not sustain spiritual growth. It's true then and it's true today. We're going to talk about that a bit. But that's what I mean by number two, second generation. 
Number three, God mostly communicates in riddles and mysterious imagery. God mostly communicates in riddles and mysterious imagery. Oh, wow, I'm seeing mostly no. I'm seeing about, yeah, about 80% no, and about 15% yes and 5% maybe. So most of you are saying, no, God doesn't speak in mostly in riddles and mysterious imagery. He's very clear in what he says. That's great for you today. My experience has been mixed, and perhaps as you go back through, some of you also will say, mine's kind of mixed, and maybe that's why you had different responses here, is because some of the times when God has spoken or communicated to you in some way, as you look back, you're like, why didn't he just say do this? Why did he act so mysterious and speak in these riddles? Um, I'll share some of those with you as, as we go along in this journey about some of the times that God has communicated. And I just look back and say, well, why didn't you just tell me? But there's a specific reason in my mind why he does. Number four, if you don't perform up to God's standards, he will remove you from your place of leadership. If you don't perform up to God's standards, he won't remove you from your place of leadership. Okay, I am seeing more maybes than I have all morning. Um, I'm seeing about 30% maybes. I'm seeing about, yeah, we're almost a perfect split with yes, no's, and maybes today, with the yes and no's being a little bit more than, than the maybes. This is tough because as we look at our loving God, and we've emphasized this for four and a half years, every place you look in scripture, you can't help but see a God who is love. Never a time he's not loving. So looking at removing people from leadership because they're not performing to a level, it really causes us a challenge here of saying, wow. So what is God doing in these stories where it appears that he's removing people from leadership? Is he removing them from leadership or is something else going on? And that's what we gotta talk about today. Because like we've said maybe a hundred times, God's love is unconditional. But this is where especially today's generation, today's preaching generation in, in most of the world is leaning toward God's love is so unconditional it doesn't matter what you do. And that's just not true, and it's not theologically accurate any more than in your relationship, for those of you who are married, or your relationship with your kids, if you have children. Yes, you have unconditional love for your children, for your spouse, but you do not have an unconditional relationship, and neither does God. And this is where the challenge comes in between those who want to say, you're saved by modifying your behavior, and those who say you're saved by grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's some challenge in understanding in these stories, especially today's story, in what is God saying about love here, and what is he saying he wants us to understand about him so that we don't make the same mistakes in our relationship with him, which is a conditional relationship, which is still loving, because he still unconditionally loves us. So we're going to talk about that today, but this is intermediate spirituality. This is understanding more than just scratching the surface of, I'm saved by grace, so I guess it doesn't matter. Or, I'm saved because I'm in the right religion, I'm in the right church, and we have the right beliefs. Neither one of those are truly accurate. So we have to find that centrist truth in the middle, and hopefully we'll be able to get to some of it today. Number five, yes, no, or maybe, God typically lets people know why he is judging them harshly. God typically lets people know why he is judging them harshly. Yes, no, or maybe. It's taken some people a little bit longer, but it's looking like uh, the yeses have about 50% of the crowd, maybe 55%. The maybes have about 30%, and the noes have the rest. This is a tough one. It's a tough one, because a lot of times people feel like, well, God just judges, he doesn't communicate. Well, today we're gonna see God communicate in a very cryptic way, very mysterious way. God's gonna communicate just before harsh, harsh judgment comes, and God's gonna have someone explain why something is about to happen. 
And the beauty, in fact, the power of story is that you and I get to look at this and, and not make the same mistakes as other people have in their relationship with God and in their continued uh, desire to have more and more success. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And to start us out, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. So get your comment cards ready. What are some of the different ways that you've witnessed God communicating with you or others near you? What are some of the ways? We talked about it in the yes, no, maybe. But what are some of the ways? And you, it doesn't have to be a, a long story. In fact, it's, you can even just say a, a word or two. But what are some of the ways that you've witnessed God communicating to you or to other people around you. We're going to start right over here with the red microphone. All right, Terry. Well, I've witnessed God communicating to my wife before we were married by giving her, she calls it an epiphany, saying, you need to marry Terry. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. God knows what he's doing. You guys are awesome. Very good. Right here, we have another one. We'll go back to the red mic, probably right here there we go oh, actually yes the other mic we'll go to the purple mic thank you sanitation reasons uh, in my first marriage um, my husband had was a dentist he had planned to go in the uh, just east of toronto to oshawa to set up a practice with his uncle who was a doctor in the same building. That had been the plan all along. Hmm. However, some people a hundred and some miles north of there talked to him about the need of a dentist in the area. There was none hmm. for 40 miles, and these people wouldn't go that far to a dentist. And he felt very impressed to go to South River, this little tiny town out in the middle of nowhere, where there were two Adventist doctors. And uh, we ended up going there, and he set up a practice. Ah, that's awesome. Very good. Uh, who else? Who else wants to do it? Right back here. Maryland's, Maryland's in the back. We'll go. Uh, we got a. All right. We'll see which one gets there first. Looks like the green microphone. We'll, we'll go with green. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I was probably in my early 20s and all alone and very depressed uh, in living uh, in a back room uh, of an elderly lady. And I was very depressed and she was gone at work and I was alone. And I laid down on, on the couch, just spiraling into a deep, dark hole mm. of depression. And, and I heard an audible voice call my name. And I mean, it made me sit up sharp. <laughs> it was so full of love. Yeah. And, and I, I looked around, and you know, no one was there. Mm. And this was before I was a Christian. And uh, not much later, I had an auto accident. I fell asleep at the wheel and flipped my car upside down. And I felt a hand on my shoulder that said, you'll be okay. And I was, I was okay. I walked out of that without a scratch. And, and I joked, oh, I must be saved for something. Yeah. And it was maybe another year that I met the Lord. Oh. And I feel those were his trying to get my attention. Yeah. That's, and that brings up a great point, Marilyn, because uh, as we saw in previous weeks, um, many people think that you have to be like in perfect spiritual shape in order for God to speak to you, to interact with you, that he waits until you clean yourself up before he comes and spends time with you. In your experience as well, tells us that all that's happened before you gave your heart to God. And so it just goes to show us once again, all the people we give up on, God is working with. God never gives up on anyone. He, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. And your story is just one more story to show us that God is not willing that any 
should perish. And he works with all of us. Very good. Blue microphone over here. When my husband and I were young, we attended a youth congress in San Francisco. And they had a very impressive missions pageant. And at the end of the missions pageant, they had a stand to sing the closing song. And then they said, if you are not willing to go wherever God might call you to go, sit down. Hmm. And I was amazed that almost everybody sat down. Yeah. But my husband and I looked at each other, and we kind of nodded a yes, and so we stood up. Hmm. And just that quick, a, a usher handed us a card, and we filled it out with our name and address and phone number and all that. <laughs> and not long later, we got a call to go to Thailand as missionaries. Oh, and we spent a good 20 years out there. And I was happy that we had followed God. That's awesome. I see a lot of love it cards going up there. Now, there was another hand over here. I think, unless uh, someone changed their mind, I thought I saw it going up. Um, over this way, there it is. There's a hand right here, Lorna. There we go, green, is that green microphone? Yes, green. Uh, God has been communi communicating with me through dreams, yeah. future dreams. I had one particular dream that um, came really true um, about a, my late pastor. At first I didn't understand, I saw him walking through me like uh, two, two times in a dream, two, and then the second time it's like a half. And um, I told him about it, and he just smiled, because in, after two and a half of passing through my eyesight, I saw him through the air in a white gown. Mm. And then I didn't understand the walking of passing through, but then I remembered that two and a half later, later I, uh, when he passed, that very day, it came back to my mind. I said, that was two, that was, the walking through was two and a half years. Yeah. And um, the family was really thankful of me for giving him a, a, a birthday party. Mm. And that was his last birthday. Mm. Yeah. Wow. God is so good about using fellow believers to communicate with those of us who, even at times, we're, even though we're doing God's work, we're distracted. So, um, Lorna, if you ever start having dreams about me, um, I'll listen. I'll well, listen. I, have, I have some other dreams that hasn't come. Some have come, but yeah. still waiting. I'm yeah. praying. Yeah, so God does communicate through, through dreams. It says so in Scripture. It says in Joel, you know, in the last days. This is supposed to be part of our experience, is, is, is dreaming dreams and, and God giving us visions of, of things that would, be, that would be very, very helpful. Good. Uh, blue microphone. Well, I have several experiences. Might have to turn it on. With God communicating with, with you. Um, one day I was in the kitchen alone. Everything is quiet. And I heard a voice, call your brother, he's very ill. I said, I want to. Hmm. And I talked that way, and he was talking that way too. Call your brother, he's very ill. Okay, I said. <laughs> so I called my brother, my sister-in-law answered. I said, how's my brother? Oh, he's fine. Is he very ill? Oh no, he's healthy, he's playing golf. And finally we got into the, why? I couldn't tell her that I heard a voice that told me to call my brother, he's very ill. Hmm. And I was sad, I said, why are you sad? Well, I imagine he's sick, he's very ill. And you know, the following, about two days after that, they called us. He went to the doctor right away and hmm. he had cancer on his throat. Yeah. Very malignant, mm. and you know this brother of mine is not too much a Christian. Mm. Well, after the surgery, I told him, Look, "The Lord loves you. He spared your life. You better go back and serve Him the way you were serving." He was a treasurer of the church. He quit. I don't know what happened. Both of husband and wife. That's not the only uh, experience I had. One day, I, I dream I, I'd be raped. Raped. I'm too old to be raped. You know. And I was so scared, really scared, because I know the person was, was going to rape me. And before that could happen, that night, 
they were coming. The Lord put me to sleep. I didn't wake up three o'clock in the afternoon. I fell asleep and I woke up 12.30. I, you know, I don't have any way to communicate because I left my telephone in the car. I just fell asleep. And this thing didn't happen because they were supposed to come that day. You know, I fell asleep. They were calling me 18 times. Why are you not answering the phone? Mm. Well, I said, I fell asleep. I don't know why I fell asleep. Yeah, God, God is good to get yeah. us peace. Okay, one more. One more right here, red microphone. Good. I found myself, like, communicating, find myself uh, communicating with God, especially in, in, in my childhood years. When I went to my aunt's house, uh, uncle's house, which lived in the in the middle of in, in the wilderness, like in the little tiny in the middle of nowhere, yeah. in in the in the Argentinian pampas, you know, the grassy land, yeah. and then like in a farmhouse. Since my uncle used to work in the in a Nestle factory, you know, and I don't, I don't know if anybody is familiar with the with Nestle, the ones the that makes the milk, the chocolate, the coffee, and stuff like that. And, yeah, and we, we went in, the house was in, like, in, in the wilderness, that all you could hear is the, the birds singing, yeah. and the, the nature, you know? Yeah. There's beautiful, there's, there's beautiful things about how God can and speak to God was, protecting me also because yeah. I, I encounter with there was a playground in in the swimming pool and, and, and behind the fence was the the, the wilderness uh, the the grassy land and behind the fence there was a black bull and he was staring at, at us like like that <laughs> and he has the horse and everything yeah not all of nature is peaceful yeah. is it no no exactly God's really good about and I and, and I saw him. I said, I'm, I'm glad that there's a fence there because he it wasn't a fence. Absolutely. He would have charged at us. Absolutely, time. absolutely. Uh, We're gonna take a look at some fences today that God erects too, because like uh, like many of you know, there are places where you feel like God can speak to you the most, and there are places where you feel like you're the most distracted. Um, there's something about nature. There's something about uh, sitting on the beach, um, just where you can cast all your cares on God and just go through an experience where God is speaking. The challenge is, like some of you have shared as well, that, that sometimes God has to speak in some pretty loud, pretty bizarre ways because in our lives we get so distracted so busy, so full of doing good stuff and trying to do more good stuff that not often can God enter in and do his stuff. And so we're going to take a look at the next experience, the next chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. This happens quite some time later. Um, some scholars say as much as 39 years after chapter 4. So we just had an experience where uh, Daniel and, and Nebuchadnezzar went through an experience where God gave him a vision of this tree that was huge and just basically gave shelter to the whole world and all these animals and bore fruit and it was chopped down, was bound for seven times or seven years and, uh, and then after that uh, was unbound. So the meaning was that Nebuchadnezzar would, if he didn't stop promoting himself in his own mind and actually saw the relationship between him and God and that God had really gifted him his kingship, it was allowing it, and God was in control, even though um, the Jewish people were not in control, that God was still saying, look, I want to have a relationship with you. You're the most influential man in the entire world right now, the largest kingdom to date, and I want to have a relationship with you. It's a lot of echoes back to what God was trying to do that we've completely missed in Egypt when God is trying to communicate with Pharaoh. He's trying to have a relationship, trying to help him understand there is a God greater than all gods that you've ever 
known about before. Well, once again, God is doing this with the most powerful nation, Babylon, at the time. Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He understands that the Most High God. But then we start into chapter 5 about 39 years later. And this is not, although some of your translations will say son of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when you look at the actual records, this might be the grandson, great-grandson of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. As we look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read in the New Living Translation, which reads, Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, his concubines. So they brought uh, these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's take a pause here and ask the question, what in the world is going on here? First of all, Who's this guy, Belshazzar? We only see him in chapter 5. He's a king for, king for a chapter. You've heard of king for a day? This guy's king for a chapter. And you really only see him in his last day. So, in essence, this is king for a day. So, who is he? He's the son of Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus, uh, his father decided to set up a co-regency, which meant that he took his oldest son, Belshazzar, and said, I'm going to put you over this part of the kingdom. I'm going to rule over this other part of the kingdom, because the kingdom's too big. It's huge. And so he decides um, to share his kingdom. So although we say King Belshazzar, it really is, is a misnomer. It's, it's not the same. He's not the leader. His dad is actually king. There's just one problem. Something's going on. Because there's another kingdom, a more powerful kingdom at that time, that's starting to do battle with Babylon, and they're winning. And so what's happening is, during these generations since Nebuchadnezzar's admission that Yahweh is the, is the most high God. What's happened is they've fallen spiritually away from the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nabonidus, in records, he actually calls himself Nebuchadnezzar, like Nebuchadnezzar uh, the, the second or the third, depending on which chronicles you, you read. He did that. He renamed himself basically because he wanted people to think of him as the high status, as his really great, great king. So in his attempts, Nabonidus' attempts to make sure that the kingdom remains strong, he enacts a rebuilding program for the temples in Babylon. And Nabonidus' mom, Belshazzar's grandma, is actually this high priestess of the sun and moon gods. And so they actually uh, go through and refurbish these temples really bring a lot more attention into these gods to try to help build up the power and the majesty of the kingdom, especially as they viewed it from a generation into away from Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So what's happened is nobody is praying to the Most High God anymore. They're praying to the Babylonian gods, the gods that they're comfortable with. In fact, Belshazzar sounds a whole lot like the name that was given to Daniel, Belteshazzar. In fact, it really means the same thing, okay? That Bel, or another name, Marduk, uh, will protect your kingdom. That's what Belshazzar means, and Belteshazzar uh, means the same thing. So in looking at uh, this story, there's a party and many of the chroniclers say, the, and you, you have on your study guide here, um, many of them say that the reason for this party, which, by the way, we have an exact date, October 12, 539 B.C. I mean, it's precise. So on October 12, 539 B.C., we learn from cuneiform records, which is the old writing that's kind of, it looks like scratches, um, 
and Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon that the Persians were at that time poised on the plains outside of Babylon ready to take the city. The Babylonia Chronicle indicates that just a few days earlier, Cyrus, the Persian, had defeated Nabonidus and the Babylonian army near Sippar, which was only 50 miles from Babylon. King Belshazzar was co-reigning with his father Nabonidus, and perhaps he felt that he needed help from the gods. Our verse here, verse 4, says that they were worshiping idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And you may read through that and think, okay, they're just making a list of the different idols and their materials. But in the Jewish mindset, which you have to read this, because it's written from a Hebrew mind, Daniel, the Hebrew mindset, they would always use these six materials when they're talking about idols made of false gods. And the reason why they would say in this format, and it's always the same format, is because there are six different materials. And in their minds, remember the Hebrew mindset, numbers had a specific meaning. And six represented imperfection. Seven represented perfection. And what they're saying here with this is it doesn't matter what the idol is and who it's to, it's always falls short. It's always imperfect compared to praying to the real God. And so even in the words here, we kind of skip by uh, some things that meant a lot to the Hebrews who would read this later. When you look at this, Nabonidus, there's a couple of different accounts. One says he was killed. One other that uh, actually gets a little bit more credibility says that he ran away. He fled and escaped. Uh, when his town, his regency, was, uh, was attacked. But all this said, so all the boring history stuff <laughs> said, what this means is that there's a very specific reason for this party. And many of the commentators say the reason why Belshazzar called a thousand of his nobles and leaders together and all of his wives and concubines together for this specific party, which is around a thousand people, is because they knew the Persian army was on its way. They just got word that Belshazzar's father's uh, regency area had collapsed and now belonged to the Persians. And the Persians are just moments away from putting Babylon under siege. So he gathers these people together not simply to have a party. Many people and many of the stories I heard growing up was about just how arrogant he was and just frivolous and just having these horrible orgy parties. But many commentators don't believe that that's what's going on based on all the stuff going around. Because the question is this. We ask it in our yes, no, and maybe question. Something bad is about to happen. Do you typically distract yourself with something good or do you not? And what many people think that he's trying to do here is not to arrogantly and ignorantly pretend like Babylon isn't coming under siege. But he has this gathering of people together. And the reason why he asks for these special goblets made of gold and silver to come and they would drink. Read what the verse says. He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, his concubines. So why did he want to drink from them? It's not a cocky moment. It's not a moment of him saying, look, we're so powerful that we can drink from the good China and not get in trouble. It's not what he's saying. He's calling on all the gods, even the gods he's ignored. He's calling on all the gods to save them. Why are they drinking from them and praising their, their idols of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone? Why is this connected? Is because it's the same activity just with the Jewish goblets. They're calling on every god known to Babylon to protect them from this impending attack. That's the scene. It's not this big 
party where everyone's happy and happy, and then all of a sudden, they're jerked into reality with a handwriting on the wall. This is a moment where they're pleading for the gods to do something miraculous. Isn't it funny that God, even during times when people are completely messing up the way they're doing religion, even though they're calling on powers other than God at the same time, isn't it interesting that God still shows up? He doesn't turn his back and say, you're not doing it right. You know how many people come to me for counseling for how to pray? Because they're so worried, the reason why they're not getting responses is because they don't have the formula right. So like, well, I'm trying to, the five-finger prayer, or the thumb represents this, and then the index finger represents, it doesn't matter. Because all God cares about is connection. And even if you're doing it wrong, and doing it in a pagan fashion, and even for selfish motives, God still shows up. And God shows up in this moment. And I want us to take a look at what it says in verse 5 and 6. It says, Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright, and his knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. This is a scene. You call for God to come. You call for God to give you protection. You call for God in some way to make himself known. And when he makes himself known, even though you're asking for him to, it still blows you away. And many of you know this because there's been times in your life when you've called for God to intervene, to interact in your life. And when he does, you still, it blows you away. And you try sharing it with other people. You try talking about it, but no one understands it because they weren't there in the moment and they didn't have the same knocking knees and the faint spell that you had. Because when God comes in, it's powerful. Amazing, amazing moment. So God gives this visual to Belshazzar. And I don't know if he just reached through the dimensions and all you can see is the hand because he's reaching through the dimension from heaven to earth, or whether he just chose to make it look in this way. But ultimately, he writes on the wall. Why do you suppose that God chose this method to communicate with Belshazzar? Why do you think God uses riddles and perplexing imagery instead of just talking in a booming voice? He could have said something here, much like at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And instead of just coming out and saying what he wants to say, he writes some cryptic words on the wall. Why do you think God chose this way? I've got the uh, red microphone right back here in the corner. I, I go down a little bit later on in the chapter. Yeah. And I see that God... Our God is a God of love, like you said earlier. Yeah. And, you know, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of violence. And you'll notice that God gives people up to four generations of chances to repent yeah. and come clean and um, express their guilt. So, like you said, that his grandfather could have been three to four hundred years, three, four generations before. So yeah. Daniel came in and explained to him what he had to, how God was so merciful yeah. to his grandfather, and he should have learned from it and humbled himself. And he's just not making this judgment just on this one action, yeah. but it has actions of everything, and that's how God is. I love that. That's, that is right. And I, I love how you, you go into what Daniel says. Even Daniel's explanation has to do with, don't you remember? <laughs> this is in your family. This is how God interacted with, with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, purple microphone right here. And then we'll go to the blue microphone and then back over here. God will use whatever means he needs to to get our attention. Exactly. He'll speak through donkeys even. Won't he? We got that with Balaam. That's right. And I would say I'm living proof he still speaks through donkeys today. Uh, blue microphone. 
My original thought was that um, he's just trying to see what works. Like all throughout, you know, at the beginning, it would do it fair. I mean, when the Israelites, he actually talked in a booming voice and they were so scared. So then he tried something else, maybe another thing. So that was my original thought. But then once I was reading more on this, I was like, maybe he knows us best. He knows us as individuals. So he knows what's going to get to us. So he takes it everything on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I love that. I love that because what I'm also seeing here is Belshazzar is also a guy who, if he just said it once, chances are that wouldn't be the right way to communicate with him. Perhaps he needs to ponder this for a while. It needs to be something he, gr- he grapples with. He's not easily able to then just make some decree and some command. He's got he's to spend some time. Uh, green microphone, and then we'll go to the red. Yes, I did a little investigation on the name uh, Nabu. I noticed, you know, Bel and Belteshazzar and such. Well, we've got Nabonidus, we've got Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. So I looked up, what's this god Nabu about? Yeah. Turns out he was the patron art of writing, and his symbols were the clay tablet and stylus. And I see that God has used, you know, uh, he uses um, Jonah d- delivered in a fish yeah. to, the, uh, to the folks who were worshiping in Nineveh, a fish god. Yes. He uses the Egyptians' god against them and their curses. Yes. Now he's kind of turning the tables here. He's using a writing on the wall from the writing god Love to it. now turn the tables on him and show the real god of uh, the Hebrews. Larry, that's brilliant. That's really brilliant because once again, it shows us that the almighty god who can just come and appear and having a booming voice. He says, look, I'll speak in the version of God that you relate to the most. And Nabonidus means, you know, that Nabu will protect. Um, and God comes in and says, look, yeah, he is the God of writing on clay. Tab- let, me, let me scratch a little bit here on the clay walls here, your plaster and help you understand what I need you to understand. I grew up in a church, and perhaps you did too, that said God only speaks a certain way. He only approves certain things. He only approves certain music. There's no way he could actually work through that music or this writing or this style or this medium. And isn't it amazing throughout time, what you just showed, Larry, is God's so desperate to communicate. He's like, I can communicate through anything. I can communicate through the things that the rest of the world sees as pagan. Because I love you so much, I just have to communicate in the way that you would understand the best. So thank you, Larry. I love that. Red microphone. I love that. That's enlightening. So the first thing that came to to mind for me was like they were just saying, you both were saying here, we each have a different learning style, yeah. a different learning personality, and some of us are very visual. I'm visual and hands-on. So for the true God to come in with his visible hand, and he is the author of the beginning and the end. Yeah. That's what I saw, is yeah. he's the ultimate writer. Yeah, and, and we're going to see a little bit later on, hopefully if we have time, um, that the term living God. And just having this living hand writing and, and everything, you'll see, you'll, you'll see how this term living God comes in in, in the coming uh, verses and chapters. I uh, don't want to miss somebody over here. Purple, I think, is the next. Yes. My question is, is the writing only for Belshazzar, or is it also for us? Oh, that's exactly what we have to ask. That's exactly what we have to ask. Because the handwriting on the wall is a cryptic message, but isn't it cool how God creates timeless messages? How, you know, and you have to be careful with this, with how you use it, but when God speaks in another person's life, especially when God has to give the bad news, God loves good news. It's his favorite news, the gospel, good news. But at times, God has to give the bad news like this. And in those times, it's in the, it's in the same way that we believe that other civilizations around the universe get to have a viewpoint of Earth in order to help them understand God is fair. God doesn't want you to go through this. This is the results of sin. In the same way, these stories also provide for us 
an experience of saying, yeah, there was a message in there for, for me as well. Red microphone, then we're going to go to the next verses real quick. I, I really thank you for bringing up that Nebatian, the God, yeah. and we know that Daniel's name was after the God too, of yes. the Babylonian God built. So how amazing it is that um, this um, young ruler actually rejects God by praising God and later on says that he is actually um, in against rebellion against God because he says, I know you're God. Yes. And I know you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Yes. Yet I am doing this. Yes. And in John 12, Jesus said, I do not condemn you for your lack of faith, but by rejecting, when you reject, you verbalize it, you, you, know, you transgress, you do action. With your own actions, you will be condemned, yeah. not by me. So how these two gods, Daniel and this Nebatian, the hand of God, which is writing, which is permanent judgment, together bears witness to God's action in the kingdom. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly, exactly true. We continue on. And uh, what happens in verses 7 through 12 is the king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, the fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to, uh, to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man, man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, was ex uh, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, first of all, who's his queen mother? It's, it's, not, it's not Belshazzar's wife, because um, his wives and his concubines are already in the party. So who is this person? Why would she know so much about Daniel? Well, first of all, uh, because she had so much knowledge, it really leads you to believe that she's his grandmother who lived during the time. She saw firsthand what was going on with her husband, Nebuchadnezzar. And she saw and, and saw the response of her husband to this true God and saw Daniel being instrumental in that. Second question we have, why would he offer the third highest position in the kingdom? It sounds like, wait a minute, uh, what, what's the second position? But when you realize that He's in a co-regency. His father was the first, first physician. Nebuchadnezzar is the first physician. Belshazzar is in the second position. So he's saying, I will put you right under me. There is no highest level that you can reach without taking over my place. And so he's offering the highest position available in the kingdom in all of these gifts. So then he goes on in verses uh, 17 through 28. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts, or give them to someone else. But I'll tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and language trembled before him in fear. He killed those who wanted, he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and 
was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Verse 22, you are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent his hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene. Tekel and Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, on your study guide, I've broken this down, which I'm very glad because we're out of time. God is a creative creator God, right? So he's not just writing words that mean one thing one way. The cool thing about these words, and the Jewish scholars actually think that God wrote this in Hebrew is written left to right, but they believe he wrote the words vertically, kind of like a... a uh, an anagram or, or something like that to where um, if you tried to read the words, which are three letters each in Hebrew, it was th three words uh, with three letters each. Now, one of the words was repeated, but each of the words had three. So they see this grid up on the wall. And if God, according to the Jewish scholars, wrote it top to bottom, even those who understood the Ar uh, Aramaic or Hebrew script couldn't read it because it it just didn't make sense when you're reading it right to left. And so when Daniel came in, um, they feel that God gave him the insight, no, read it this way, and you'll see the hidden message that I have on the wall. Not only that, but each of these words, because in Hebrew and Aramaic, there's no vowel markings. There's just consonant markings. But because you know the language so well, you just fill in in context, you fill in what vowels are supposed to be between the consonants. Um, and so when you look at these three-letter words, they can actually be taken in three different ways. That's why not only the, the, the words there, which would have come across as all money. It was money, money, money. We read many, many, it's money, money to them. <laughs> many. If you just read it, you'd be reading 50 shekels. Okay, 50 shekels, 50 shekels. And then when you read tekel, it'd be, well, a shekel, which is two-fifths of an ounce. So you'd be saying 50 shekels, 50 shekels, shekel, and then you get to parson. Some translations say u parson, which u just means and in Aramaic. So parson is now meaning half of a minus, so it's 25 shekels. So you'd be saying 50 shekels, 50 shekels, a shekel, 25 shekels. I don't get it. But if you also read it, that's in their noun form, but if you also read it in their verb form, it meant that God had numbered or, or counted his many. And it also meant that um, tekel, meant that uh, you've been evaluated or weighed because the verb form means to weigh and parson means to divide. But pedas, which is the actual Aramaic word, depending on how you said it with the vowels, it was also the name for Persia. And so there's all these extra deep meanings in there. Well, first you see money, money, money. Wait, 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 no. We're talking about how it's weighed and weighed and, and it's, it's not balancing out. It's found too light and then, and then it's divided. And then you read it in its, in its third form and you say, oh, how is it divided? 
Well, the guys outside your door are going to divide it up for you. God wanted you to have kingdom and, and power. He wanted you to have the same experience as Nebuchadnezzar, understanding who he was. He wanted to work with you. You just had no desire to work with him. God will work with anyone who will work with him. The problem is, the only time Belshazzar called on God, he did it in a way where he used the things of God to call on the other gods. And because of that, God says, I don't, I just, I don't know what to do because I don't seem to be able to, to get through with you. And so verses 29 to 31, then Belshazzar's, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes and a gold chain hung, hung around his neck. You see what's happening? Well, here is a man of God. Let me just, maybe I'll make his God happy if I do some nice things. And we do that quite a bit, don't we? We think that philanthropy will make up for our lack of spirituality. And he did it, but, and he proclaimed that Daniel was the third highest ruler in the kingdom, but don't worry, because that position's not going to last very long, because that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. We're going to pick up this story next week to see what is God doing here. The question we have to ask this week is, a God who loves unconditionally, who wants to have a relationship with you, also has a limit. And this is the tough, tough conversation that we have with a lot of people. Because people present God in a way as if he has no emotions, no feelings. God wants to work with us. Yes, God does love us. God has huge plans. Just read Jeremiah 29, verse 11 to 13. God has plans for you, hope, and a future. God wants you to have the highest levels of success. But he also has a limit. If you don't want to work with him, he will not force you to work with him. God will bring in the blessings but he will never, ever force those blessings on you. Ultimately, as we look at this one chapter story, this king just for one chapter, we have to ask the question, what does God want us to know about God? And even though it's unfortunate, and you know with God being love, being 100% love, it had to hurt him more than anyone else to say, you're just beyond wanting to work with me. And in doing so, God says, I will let you do whatever you want to do. But I'll also always have a person of God around you to explain to you so you understand. Even the thief on the cross had someone at arm's reach to explain to him that God wants to save you, that God's desire is to have a relationship with you, and God wants to bring you to your highest levels of success. And in that moment, we don't know in the story. But don't you know, because God is desperate that not anyone would perish, but everyone come to repentance. Don't you know that God, in his working there, the handwriting on the wall, is working to help Belshazzar even in those final moments? to repent. And perhaps one day, we're all going to be shocked over two people in heaven. First of all, ourselves. <laughs> Second of all, wouldn't it be cool if we realize in that moment that God is working here, which seems super harsh. God is trying to also inscribe his name on a man's heart who up to that time felt no need or desire to have a relationship with the God who had given him all the blessings. I have a big suspicion that we'll be able to have a conversation and he'll tell his own version of the story of when his knees were knocking and when he was faint because the finger of God wrote not only in his palace but wrote in his heart, I need you to have a relationship with me. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? And I just want to say thank you so much for slogging through such bad audio. But I think you'd agree, God had a great message for us. 
that he needed us to hear. So I'm so thankful that you listened to this episode and I can't wait for you to listen to the next episode. It's going to have some great audio, but it's also going to have some great content about Daniel in the lion's den. And there are things that you might never have heard about that will really help you understand God's character and what he does during times where you're doing what's right. You're doing everything you're supposed to do, and yet you find yourself in the pit with the lions. I can't wait for you to hear all about it, so join us for episode 64. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats and the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.